Please take the word of God and turn with me to Mark chapter number 14. Where we'll be this morning, Mark chapter number 14. We'll pick up with our exposition of the book of Mark, where we left off last week. And in a similar fashion to last week, there was some, some difficulty with preparing for this particular message. Um, again, because I think in some way we had preached it before about a month ago. And as we looked at the uh, Apostle Peter, and his journey alongside Christ in the last hours of his, his life. And we look forward to this portion of Scripture, but I would like to um, highlight it once again this morning and try to make some application to us. So, um, If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading up this morning in Mark chapter 14, verse number 66, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and pray the Lord would bless the reading of His Word. You read these words in verse 66, now as... Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. Now a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Let's pray. And again, Father, we come to you simply on the basis of Jesus Christ. Father, begging you to bless your word. Father, we come this morning with nothing of our own. No accolades, Father. Little skill. Little intellect compared to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If it could even be measured upon a scale. Father, we come with what we might think is eloquence and rhetoric. Father, may we um, say with the Apostle Paul this morning that we glory in nothing save Jesus Christ and him alone. So, Father, would you give us a few moments now where we do just that. Um, Father, we marvel at your glory. We revel in your Son. We seek to boast in the grace that he's bestowed upon sinners like us. Father, may we look in in Peter's life and, and in some way see ourselves that we are made of similar flesh. Father, And we have much to learn, not only from his failure, but also from his restoration and the grace that you continue to bestow upon sinners even now. So, Father, we pray for the next hour that you'll just give us um, a stayed mind, um, a mind, Father, that is fixed upon you. Um, help us to remove distractions. Um, help us to be reverent. And, Father, help us to look for Christ. And may we meet him this morning, Father, in the text. May your spirit just overwhelm us um, with a picture of who he is and what he came to accomplish on our behalf. Of the holiness, the righteousness, the just character of an almighty God. Um, but also, Father, that one who says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Magnify his grace, Lord. Help us to magnify his mercy. And help us, Father, in this hour to look to you. And, Father, accomplish a thing 
and um, an eternal work, Father, that you can only accomplish in us. May we leave different and much more like your son as a result of our gathering. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Bless you. Again, if you've been with us, we come back to a very familiar portion of Scripture. I mean, if you're visiting with us, and we've taken it as our task simply to work through the book of Mark verse by verse. Um, we come upon a very solemn and sober portion of Scripture that we've been laboring in now for some time. Um, we're, we're not only in the last days of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but we're in the last hours. Um, as we finish up the, um, the chapter here before us in Mark chapter 14, we'll finish it up today. Um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is in just past the midnight hour, and as it concludes... Um, he has approximately 12 hours to live. Um, we will conclude this portion of Scripture. It will approximately be 3 a.m. and it will be 3 p.m. when our Lord gives up the ghost, the Spirit, and um, gives his life ultimately a ransom for sinners like us. What a time it's been. I'm in my own heart to see our Lord um, just displayed the ultimate character and activity I'm of a righteous, yet at the same time a gracious Savior. Um, we've seen him in his deity do things that only God can do. And at the same time, we've seen him in his humanity do things that we ought to do, yet never would. And he does it on our behalf. And he does it so that we might know him. And know him in his fullness of his power. In his humanity, we've seen him struggle. In his humanity, we've seen him agonize. And again, the last week of our Lord's life, we see him coming in, um, uh, being celebrated as the great fulfillment of that Old Testament prophetic, um, of those Old Testament prophetic passages of, as the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come. He would be hailed as King Hosanna, and within the week, um, he would be beaten, battered, and bruised, mocked, and scoffed. Um, with a face covering, beaten and pul- uh, beaten um, to the pulp, um, because they hated him truly. He enters into the temple and he, in some way, provokes them. Um, even to this end, he knows his purpose. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. Um, he pronounces judgment upon the temple as well as that nation. Um, he does it parabolically. He does it very plainly. He knows at the end, and they know it as well. And that he has come as one in opposition um, to the flesh and in opposition to the hypocrisy of the nation um, of Israel. And this provokes them to even greater hatred to where they plan and plot. Um, not only to find do they hate the Christ, but one within um, does as well. His name is Judas. And by this time, he's carried out his, his great plan in betraying our Lord. Um, He leaves the Lord's Supper, no doubt, as they celebrate Passover and institute a new supper of the new covenant people of God. And at some point, um, Judas, prior to that, is just overwhelmingly um, bitterness uh, in his heart and and concludes as the devil enters into him that now's the time. They don't want to take him in the middle of a feast um, such as Passover because a riot may break out and they get the answer to their prayer um, through a man by the name of Judas who... um, who the hatred in his heart culminates, the greed overwhelms him, and he sells our Lord and Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Um, they've came and got him previously in this portion of Scripture. Um, 
after he agonized all night in prayer, or at least for approximately an hour or so, uh, it probably seemed like all night to him as he sweat drops of blood and he cried out with vehement cries and tears. Um, he weeps and he cries out and, and he meets with God and God no doubt gives him some resolve, answers his prayer, and he stands up and he says to the disciples, rise up, it's time, let us go. At that moment, um, our previous text says that um, Judas was awaiting, um, awaiting with a Roman cohort, awaiting with a religious elite um, to take him. And he deceives him with a kiss. Deceives him with, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with the most affectionate of signs, with, a, with an affectionate embrace. They identify him and they take him. The disciples won't have it. Peter draws a sword, cuts off a man's ear, and um, in, in, in due fashion, just like Peter would, um, seeks to thwart the plan, the very plan of God, and the, as well as the plan of, of Satan. Jesus tells them, son, you need to stay your sword. Um, I must drink the cup. The cup which would be the wrath of God uh, for sinners like us. It would be poured out upon him and he would take it in its fullness just about 12 hours later. All of the disciples have abandoned him at this point. Um, that's what the text says. The fulfillment of that prophecy out of Zechariah that, that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter and they've all left him. Peter, though, follows apart um, afar off is what Luke tells us, some distance away as he follows the cohorts to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest's house. Um, there's a palace there that they live in, and outside there's a court in which Peter will find himself warming himself by the enemy's fire all the while at the same time. On the inside, Jesus is receiving his trial, this informal, illegal trial that's set up. The sentence has already been given, and now they need to find um, a charge to lay against him. And that's the whole purpose of that trial. Um, it's a farce. It's, a, it's, 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 it's put together for this um, particular reason. Jesus must die. If he doesn't, he'll carry the nations after him. We must put him to death. And they're done with it. And they're, they're, they're tired of him. Um, thus, they, they put him through a phase of trials. I'm in the midnight hour. And they sentence him to death. Along with that, he's already, the persecution has started um, he's being beaten, he's been battered, he's being bruised, and he's being mocked and he's being scoffed, the Savior of all the world. Um, the beauty of all the ages, the very uh, definition of godliness, character, um, loveliness, beauty, and majesty, clothes himself in human flesh and subjects himself and yields himself to the plan of God for sinners like us. And men... Um, take him and they do with him as he pleases. Yeah, they do it according to the plan of God. They do it, he, uh, we, we may rightfully say that the Jewish people murdered him. We might, right, may rightfully say that Rome put him to death. But at the same time, we say that Jesus Christ himself stayed the very angels of God and yielded him when, when he could have utilized um, the authority of heaven, with a, with, a, with a voice of a word, he yields himself to the very dirt that he molded into the image of God for the purpose of love to the Father and love to you and to me. And this is the story. This is what we read. This is where we're at. The lamb goes to the slaughter um, like a lamb, like a, like a sheep that is dumb. He opens not his mouth. And he does it for the pure love of the Father. He does it for the love of the people of God throughout the ages. And he does it alone. Um, the best of men. 
and leave him to do it alone. He's truly all he can only he can do it. He can only do it alone. And that's where we find him now. We find him there alone. Um, save one. Peter, the zealous of all. <laughs> Again, the best of men. And not only the best of men, but the best of Christians, the best of the disciples. Committed to our Lord. Um, his story began long ago, three and a half years. Uh, but at the same time, this story began just hours earlier. I believe it was verse number uh, 29. Where after our Lord gives that great prophecy that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. And that he would go before them in Galilee. Or P, uh, in Galilee, Peter says to him, even if all are made to stumble, Lord, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. He got more indignant, Peter did. He said, if I have to die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. And when we see a self-confidence, an overconfidence, a pride even in the, in the, the, the life of Peter, but it's not known just yet. Maybe, maybe it's simply faith. And that's the way the disciples take it. And they, they don't have clarity on what our Lord is going to do, even up to this point. Even as, as pure and as clear as our Lord has been, they, they, they cannot yet accept that our Lord will go, that our Lord will be punished for our sins, that our Lord will die, and our Lord will be resurrected. Somewhere there's a disconnect, and there's a sincerity to Peter. You know, it's easy to just um, throw him under the bus and to say that it's, it's, it's pride in its essence. And, and while it, it is pride in its essence and it's overconfidence and it's a lack of faith and there's a weakness of flesh and a lack of dependency, dependency upon, <clears throat> upon the Spirit of God, at the same time, there's a sincerity there and there's a love for Christ. Um, it's just immature and the faith is fragile and you'll see that in just a, a moment um, that we'll be subdued um, under... Um, duress, and he will deny our Lord three times. And let me just say that, 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 that while there is some understanding that even the best of men and the best of us would have probably followed suit if we would even had the bravery to follow far after, um, at the same time, we do not undermine the nature of the sin in which is before us. He denied our Lord three times. And he denied it under seemingly no duress, a little girl. And the progression of the denial will just continue to um, take intensity as it goes on. First, he'll deny himself before a servant girl. Then he'll deny himself before a servant girl and bystanders. And eventually, it'll progress to the intensity of, of um, denying our Lord before an entire crowd with um, curses and with oaths. Um, but at the same time, the sin is great, but the grace is greater, you know? We'll see a man fall as far as you can fall. Um, and while you're there, you would probably wonder if his faith would be ultimately shattered and he abandoned the Lord, you know? The popular term today is the deconstruction of his faith. Um, but it won't be. He won't be like Judas in which his faith is left shipwrecked. He will be upheld by the Father, by the Son, and by the Spirit of God. And he will be restored um, in, a, in a greater fashion. Um, and that's what we see here in the text. And I simply want to read the text to you and give you some, 
some application. We pick up in verse 66, but, it, but actually in verse number 54 is where it begins in this context. But Peter, but Peter we read in verse 40, 54, but Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And then in, in true Markan fashion, he picks back up a subplot. And it may not even be a subplot. It may be a contrast. What you're going to find here is, in some sense, a contrast between Christ and Peter. Christ is down, or is inside Annas and, and Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin is all before him and under great opposition and persecution. Um, our Lord is going to stand faithful. And in some sense, an opposition down below. Peter is surrounding himself um, in the enemy's presence. And he too um, will be interrogated in a different fashion, but he will crumble under um, the duress. I think of his own faith. Not the fear of a little girl. Um, but his faith is becoming shattered. What he thought the kingdom ought to be and what he thought the kingdom um, should accomplish and what he thought Christ should do um, just falls and fails in the immediate hour. Have you ever wondered how in the world um, it is that the Apostle Peter goes from the height of a mountain um, to, the, <laughs> to, the, to the lowness of the valley in less than seemingly an hour? You know, again... It seems we, we can give him an extremely hard time because of the pride and the self-confidence, and we will. We'll argue that one of the great things that he's learned here is humility, but at the same time, um, he kept his word previous, right? Like, we see him keeping his word. He pulls a sword out. He stands before a Roman cohort. I mean, he is a man that said, I will go to die with you, Lord, and he does. There's no way he's going to be able to withstand the Roman cohort, which could be anywhere from 600 to 1,000 people. Uh, in that moment, does he really think that he can win that battle? As he pulls out the sword and says, I will even go with you to death, and in some sense, keeps himself, he keeps his word even unto death? So what has changed within the hour to where now it's not standing before a Roman cohort that he buckles, but um, he stands before a servant girl, among the enemy, um, and he can't say, I know him, I love him. He's the savior of all the world. He can't say in that moment that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, he can't say, this is the man that I've walked with and I've prayed with for three to three and a half years. This is the man that I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration pull back the veil of his glory. You know, with Moses, uh, with, 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 the, the, this is the man whom, whom, whom held out his hand and I walked with on the water. You know, I defied all odds and gravity and, and physics and, and I prayed with him and I heard him agonize and I saw him preach and he fed the five thousands and I was there. And in this denial, it's a great sin because it's not just a denial of a knowledge of a man, it's a denial of an entire relationship with this man. That's what the term means, a deny. Um, it, it's that same word that our Lord uses that says, if, you know, if any man come, come to me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He must um, deny relationship with oneself. Um, he must take up his, he must associate with me. Peter heard that sermon. Peter heard the sermons like, um, you must not be ashamed of me. Anyone that is ashamed of me, I will be, uh, my father will be ashamed of. I will be ashamed of on that great day. 
You know, how in the world could he go from mountaintop ready to die for our Lord to valley in such a sense that he not only denies um, knowledge of our Lord, but an entire relationship with him in essentially three and a half years? Um, How did his faith get so fragile to where he doubted? And I don't think it was the little girl. I don't even think necessarily it was the... um, um, the possibility of dying on trial, that may, that may have been part of it. I think he had a perception and a conception of what the kingdom ought to be. And as our Lord is in chains, it all crumbles before him. And now the Messiah that he thought would come and rule and reign with a rod of iron and set up a kingdom um, here on earth, which was the popular belief of those days. Um, now he's in chains. Now he's going to death. Was it all a lie? Did I really know him? Is he who he says that he is? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son? Is he the Christ? Is he the one? That that, that it seems that his faith is beginning to become fragile and, and, and frail and even just fall apart even before him such that a little girl would come along and um, it's all, all to pieces. And that's what we read here in verse 66. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls came uh, of, of the high priest came. And again, you'll, you'll get the picture. Um, they've taken our Lord. They've taken him to Caiaphas, the high priest's house. Um, it's a palace. Uh, outside the palace, the, uh, the inner court, um, there's an outer court. And even without the outer court, there's what we would refer to as a porch. I think we know what a porch is here in the south. Um, it's very similar. It would have been kind of like a vestibule, an entryway into the outer courtyard. And then you would go into the house in which the high priest and all of his family would, would live and, and dwell. That's where they've taken our Lord, inside um, the palace. And now Peter is outside warming himself by the fire in the outer courts. Um, he's below in the courtyard, it says. And that one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Literally, this could be translated a little girl. Um, it's a diminutive form that, 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 that could be translated just uh, a, a small girl. Um, not just a servant girl. The, the term there is, uh, is used always of a slave or a servant girl. And the high priest um, would have had many of those. But particularly in this passage, uh, Mark wants us to know that it was a little girl. Um, it was one of a small stature, possibly a young child. If, at best, um, a young teenager. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, now, if you were to go over to the Gospel of John, and you don't need to turn there, but you would, uh, you would, you would find that, 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 that Peter was actually let in to the courtyard because you had to have entry let in. Um, it, John records for us that John uh, actually in some way knew the high priest in John chapter number 18 in the family and therefore got uh, into the courtyard and access into it because not just anyone could go into the high priest and he got in because of John, um, John's word. John knew part of the family and John lets them in. There would have been a servant girl or there would have been someone at the gates um, that would have, that have guarded the gates and not just allowed anyone in. It very well may be that the servant girl that allowed him in is the servant girl um, that meets him here and knows because of that um, that that he was with. He knows that he's associated with John and would have been with Jesus. It very well could have also been um, that over the past 
course of the week, he's been in the temple. She, she may have been alongside the high priest, Caiaphas, serving him in some capacity. Um, and he's just caused a ruckus. He's preaching a, a gospel that is just in opposition to them. And he's preaching a message that is in direct opposition to the nation of Israel and everything that they are and what they uh, stand for. So, in, in any way, um, at some point, she has seen him. She has seen him with Christ. She has seen him with the disciples. Um, and the text says that when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, she, it, it's as if you're going um, to the grocery store and there's a, an immediate glance and you catch your eye and then uh, as the eye catches and you turn, you turn back and fix your gaze. It could literally be translated. She fixed her gaze upon him and said to him, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. And this is probably um, in the original a, 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 an offensive type way. You know, that, that you're one of those Nazarene. You were with the Nazarene. You know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, there's probably possibly disdain in her voice with the way that this is phrased. Um, that, with this Jesus of Nazareth. And the text says in verse 68, but he denied it. He denied it. He denied being with Jesus, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. I mean, he could be saying completely, like, I have no knowledge of this man. I don't understand even the question, um, what do you mean? There could be a question at the end of it. What are you saying? I'm going to, I'm going to dialogue and argue with this little girl. I, you know, continue on. But it, he may just be saying that I don't know what you're saying at all. And the text says that he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. I mean, it very well could be here that, that now that he's come under fire and he's asked the question and he's lied and denied our Lord, um, that immediately, just like us, shame and guilt comes over us, maybe even possibly caused by the rooster's crow, that he leaves the outer courtyard and he abandons it and he goes to the porch. I mean, he's running. This is what you see. You see a man progressively falling into deeper sin um, as he denies the Lord and you see him running from it. And our Lord very gently, I love it, um, with, a, with a rooster crow, um, reminds him um, of the devotion of the of the of the, the the devotion that he had earlier, and it's almost as if he shoots a a a, a shot out over the bow and uses common grace and and the means of a rooster crow, something so simple, to remind him of the devotion that he had made to Christ and the fact that he should watch and that he should pray and he should stay devoted and he shouldn't um and he shouldn't deny the lord and thus yet he runs verse 69 and the servant girl saw him again and there's some debate on whether this was the same servant girl mark it seems to be the same servant girl there's that definite article there the servant girl the one the only that saw him again could be that she went after him. It could be that she just ran into him again out on the porch as she's working and as she's laboring. Um, nevertheless, a servant girl sees him once again and began to say to him, those who stood by, this is one of them. So not, not only is she going to dialogue with Peter now because she knows that he's going to deny it, um, but she now pulls in the crowd and says, surely this is one of them. We've seen him with them. With who? With that group, that, that, that scandalous group of disciples. Those 12, that 11, the ones that were with Jesus, the ones that labored alongside him. It's as clear as day. And I'm going to pull in two or three witnesses, and here they are. 
um, with the crowd. But verse 70, um, he denied it again. Denied it again. Other um, accounts of the Gospels give us a little bit more into that second one. Mark doesn't. Um, He's a fast-paced writer and um, just moves on. And a little later, those who stood by by said to Peter again, "Um, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. So now if we don't don't just have one witness, we have multiple witnesses, and we have the witness of accent. (laughs) You know, um, the Galilean accent would have... Uh, would have been missing particular um, guttural sounds which would have clearly identified them from that part of the country. I mean, it would have been somewhat of uh, racism even within uh, the nation of Israel. They would have been seen as less than. They would have been seen as different. They would have been seen as backwards, as, as a number of things. But anyway, here um, it's clear that there is a group of Galileans that are following Christ. And the, the only reason that you could be here uh, in this courtyard, um, as a Galilean, um, we're sure, I mean, it's definite. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are with this man. And against the mountain of evidence that Peter has before him, um, the shame and the guilt overwhelm him. His faith is so fragile and frail, um, almost to nothing. The doubt has overwhelmed him for whatever reason. Um, he continues to run, not only physically, but mentally and spiritually to the point where um, he's willing to deny all the witnesses. Um, I don't care what you say, I don't know this man. You know, I know that I have a Galilean accent, I'm here for uh, the food. You know, <laughs> I was walking by and I felt the warm fire. I mean, I just came on in and tried to warm myself in passing through you know i'm here for the fellowship i'm here for the fun i mean peter clearly you're caught um, but something within him the sin just carries him even deeper um, the lack of faith just carries him even farther and he continues to degrade to such an extent that in spite of all the evidence he um, he just continues to outright lie and deny our savior even to the point where the text says um with curses and with oaths. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said, Surely this is one of them. For you're a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Verse 71, then he began to curse and swear, or to curse an oath. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And a second time, the rooster crowed. This is how intense that it got. Um, the idea here is the idea of a curse, an anathema. I um, mean, he's not cursing like, um, as I've said before, he's not cursing in the sense of, of, of swearing um, in, a, in a crude way that we would today. The idea is, is that he's pulling down curses upon himself if he's lying. Um, he's saying things like, I swear to God in heaven that if this is the case uh, and that if I'm lying to you and there comes the oath, uh, may he strike me dead. This would have been the natural formula um, within Jewish tradition and even today, you know. Um, if I'm lying, I'm dying, you know, I'm swearing upon my mother's grave or things of that nature. But literally, he's pulling down a curse from heaven, calling upon God to curse him um, if he's lying. That's the intensity of the denial. That is the, the tragedy of the lack of faith and the shame and the guilt that has overwhelmed him such that something has brought doubt and fear into his soul um, such that he's willing to deny everything that he has experienced in the last three and a half years and in some sense will deny um, the eternity that is before him as he denies the Son of God. 
Um, so you see the progression and the intensity of sin. And then verse 72, uh, second time, the rooster crowed. You know, Mark is actually the only um, gospel writer that tells us of two roosters crowing. Um, there's some speculation as to why many just believe that Mark got it wrong. It doesn't correlate with Matthew and with Luke or with John. Um, I'm going to give you a, just kind of an opinion, and you can say so this, you can take or leave, all right? Um, Luke and Matthew um, have different purposes in the writings, and they, while they were eyewitnesses, they wouldn't have been an eyewitness of this count. Um, Mark, it is believed, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that Peter is the primary influencer of this passage of Scripture. Um, if that is the case, then he would have, and that's why you read through the book of Mark, and you read strange things like that, that none of the other gospel writers write. For example, at the feeding of the 5,000, I believe that it was, uh, Mark actually writes that he sat down on the green grass. What in the world does that have to do with it? Well, it may not have anything more to do with it other than God inspired it, Mark recorded it, but it could also be that those are unique things that, would, that an eyewitness would have remembered. That he would be painting the picture, and as his mind went back, um, he would see the green grass, he would see the blue sky, he would see some of the details that some of the other writers may not have. I mean, it very well may be here that, that, that the gospel writer Mark is leaning upon Paul, who was an eyewitness who heard the rooster crow, heard it with his own ears, will never forget it. You know, church tradition actually says, and again, you can take it or leave this, but church tradition um, has, has, has argued in the past that after that, it's recorded that every single time that, that the apostle Peter heard a rooster crow in the midnight hour, he wept bitterly. And again, that may be true or that may not, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that, that this portion of Scripture, that rooster crow, that first one, which was a reminder, stay faithful, watch, pray, depend upon the Spirit, do not deny me. Um, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. That, that, that warning shot out over the bow, that Peter, stay faithful, just rocked his world when he heard the second rooster crow. And the text says that he called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. You may have a text that says he remembered. He remembered just hours before that text that we had read earlier that, that the, the shepherd will be struck and, and that the sheep will be scattered and that you will, uh, I won't deny you, Lord. It won't be before the rooster crows twice, Peter, that you'll deny me three times. And you know he's counting up in his mind. And the reality is, is that there's three separate experiences here of which he actually denies them. But it was a whole night of denial. You know, some of the verbs actually, he possibly argued with the little girl. He possibly argued with the crowd. And time and time again, he's, he's offered this, um, by God, this, this, this opportunity for faithfulness. And this opportunity for perseverance. But he, but he does not. And, the, and, and that simple means of grace in the rooster just pulverizes his entire inner man such that um, it, 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 it exudes into his physical nature. And, and he, as he remembers those words that Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. He wept. Luke chapter number 22, I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but I'd encourage you to go over there and to read Luke's account. Um, it very well may be that at this time, the trial with Jesus is over. 
Because at some point, Luke records that, that, that as he hears the rooster crow a second time, um, our Lord and Savior looks at Peter with a look. And at that moment, Peter just breaks. And the, and the word could be translated, he wept bitterly. It could also be faithfully translated that he fell down. He crumpled under the pressure. He, he, he fell to the ground and he wept. As our Lord gave him a glance, it very well may be that at the end of the trial of Caiaphas, they are leading him out to the, the final trial, the final Jewish trial under the Sanhedrin where they declare him um, a, a blasphemer and they will declare him uh, sentenced to death and take him off to Pilate. And it very well may be that as our Lord is leaving Caiaphas's, uh, the, the high priest's house, that he's leaving with a swollen face and a black eye and a bloody and bloody streams from the agonizing in and he's stumbling across as he's being led in chains and just with a simple look from Christ, Peter just melts. I mean, he just falls to the ground. He hears the roosters crow and he knows that, 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 that he has committed one of the most grievous sins that he could ever think of, of denying the Son of God, denying the Creator of heaven and earth, denying the Savior of all the world, denying the one whom he had heard, whom he had listened to, whom he had prayed with, whom he had walked on water to, whom he had saw transfigured. And all of that rushes back to his mind and he remembers the word of the Lord. And that spirit, the Spirit of God takes the sword of the Spirit and just pierces him asunder such that it brings him to his knees. Thus he literally weeps bitterly that he had become a truly broken vessel. And that's our story. You know, at least not in its fullness, but it is part of it. Um, Peter's a man after our own heart, isn't he? I mean, in some sense. We love men like Peter. I don't know how many people I've talked to. We love men like Paul. We love particularly men like David. We love to see men that have fallen. And it's really sad, but at the same time, it's not. It's... Um, it's not that we love to see them fall, but, but we, know that we love to know that Jesus saves sinners and that he restores. And that's what we're going to hear in just a few moments. But um, first, I want to give you a few lessons that we've learned. But ultimately, our Lord will restore Peter, Peter in particularly John chapter 21. Um, but I would like to give you just a few things. What can we take away from this portion of Scripture and then we'll culminate at the end with that application. So, um, what did Peter learn that night? And what can we learn from Peter's encounter with our Lord and with this little girl and with the bystanders and, and ultimately with Jesus himself? First of all, Peter learned humility. Um, he learned humility. You know, if there's anything in this church that I pray that we would learn, and it's not to say that we don't have it, um, but I'm convinced that one, if not the most supreme Christian ethic, um, is to have a humble heart. 
And we read that all throughout the scriptures. We read that blessed are the poor in, in spirit. In Matthew chapter number 5, as our Lord preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, we read in the Old Testament that the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit, one that is pulverized, one that is, is moldable, one that is His. I was thinking this morning of Romans chapter number 12, whenever you read that great phrase, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. Um, and then, then from that flows, like how are you going to do that, Paul? I mean, who in the world can do that? Um, how, what, what's the, 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 the mindset? What's the temperament that you must have? He says in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. That you and I are not to think more highly of ourselves um, than we ought. Did, did Peter, if he learned anything, did he learn that? In 1 Peter, chapter number 5, you read these words. Peter writes almost three decades later. Um, you wonder if he learned his lesson. You ever have people like that? You know, they go through the great trials, they go through the great temptations, they go through, you know, Satan's buffeting, you go through the sifting of the wheat, and they walk out on the other side, and it's like they learned nothing. I mean, they just carry on, there's a sense of shame, and there's a sense of guilt even over their sin, but there's no preparation for the battle to come, there's no provision, I mean, there's no provision made for the flesh, there's no um, taking to task, there's no sobering of mindset, um, there's no preparation in the inner man or in the outer man, um, there's nothing. Peter, did you learn anything? And as I've, 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 and as I've labored through Peter's life over the last several weeks, and, and I've, I've thought of my own life, and I've thought of you, and I've thought of my children, and I've thought of my wife, and I've thought about all of us. I've, I've thought, thought, thought too mostly about Peter, but I've thought, you know, did, did Peter learn anything? And if so, where would we find it? And, and I would encourage you to go to 1 Peter or 2 Peter sometime and read in light of it all the truths that he must have learned, if not there, but particularly there. But through his out of life, what did he learn? He learned that you, that, 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 that you and I, that he needed to humble his heart. Um, that that was one of the great purposes of the temptation. That that was one of the great uh, purposes in the trial. Peter, you're self-confident. Peter, you're, you're prideful. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And clearly, that's the source of the denial. Well, Peter... What do you have to say about that now, 30 years later, as he writes to the saints abroad who are being persecuted, he writes these words, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Listen, be sober. Be vigilant, because I wasn't, you know? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in all the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, you. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and forever. That, 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 that Peter's problem in the great temptation and the denial, the source of his 
he is um, the source of his trouble um, was the devil, but it was also pride. But if we learn anything, we learn, if Peter learned anything, um, it was that he needed a humble heart. He learned that the devil was real. He learned that he was a roaring lion. You know, if you go to Luke chapter 22 in the same context, what you read is you read um, Jesus saying to the group, the devil has desired to sift thee. But Peter, I have prayed for you. That what is before you is going to be a satanic attack, a temptation that is formed and fashioned by him to separate you from your faith. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when you are returned, Peter, go and strengthen your brethren. You know, Peter... Um, no doubt in this moment, had a little view of sin, had a high view of himself, had a little to no view of Satan. But when it's all said and done, um, he knows the realities of life. That Satan is real, that he was proud, and that the, 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 the avenue of the grace of God in every man's life, in every woman's life, and in every child's life is to become poor in spirit and to humble um, your hearts. It's not, the, it's, it's not to cling to the, to the, to the basic narrative of the world. Um, it's not to, you know, the, the world today believes that man is basically good. Not only is man basically good, but, he, but, 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 but you are even better, you know? You're great. You're the best thing since sliced bread, man. I mean, you, you just need to trust in yourself. The power of life and success just resides in you, that you are just, you know, the, the, on top of everything. That you need to know your worth and that your worth is, and, and that when you know your worth, you shouldn't settle for less. You know, you deserve it. What? Anything, everything. Whatever it is that makes you, you happy. That's the idea. You're the captain of the ship. You're the creator of life. It's, it's whatever makes you happy and you simply need to, Find that confidence in yourself to believe in yourself that you're worth it and you just need to go after it. You know, people who fail and people who suffer according to them are just, they, they simply lack self-confidence. And that achievement begins with trusting yourself, believing in yourself, loving yourself, not letting anyone diminish that, but just being the captain of your own ship. And even, though, even if you have to go alone, go alone and believe in yourself. Peter, how'd that work out for you? Um, to even suggest to people now that we are corrupt, that we are sinful, that we are selfish, that we are evil is to be thought of as one of the most harmful things that you can ever tell a person. That, 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 that this is what children are being taught in our public institutions. It's, and it's creating a world of deluded people. They're coming out not merely believing that there's equal opportunity in America, but that there should be equality on, of everything across the board. They don't understand why they're not able to, to be what everyone has been telling them that they can be and that they want to be. I mean, they believe in themselves, then why in the world isn't things working out? Because clearly it's the system. It's set up against them. It must come down. They're victims. Their failures have to be explained by some source outside of them because it could never be them. It can never be pride, it can never be evil, it can never be corruption, it can never be um, over self-confidence, it can never be a lack of humility, it can't be them. They're great. I mean, they're, the power resides in them. Um, the scripture is clear. That the power that resides in you is the power of destruction. It is the power of corruption, it is the power of the flesh, it is the power of pride. And, 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 and if that is what is the guiding principle of your life, inevitable is a fall. 
As grand and as glorious as it seems, Peter um, is the leader of the pack. Peter is the most prominent. Peter's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's walking on the water. Peter is pulling his sword out. I mean, Peter's fighting the battle. But Peter, I'm telling you, heed the warnings. Don't trust in the flesh. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, you're tr- and you, you, you don't watch, you must watch, you must pray. You can't lean completely on yourself. Don't boast too much. Heed the warnings. Trust the Spirit. Stop depending upon yourself. Um, you're going to fall and you're going to fall hard. That's exactly what happened. And this, this, this trial was fashioned. He, he learned that he was no adversary for the devil. <laughs> he learned that he could not go toe-to-toe with him. He learned that, that, that Satan, as, 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 as little or as much as he knew about him, um, now he knows him experientially. He's been put through the ringer. He's been put through the sieve. And now his faith is being separated from him. And he's left with almost nothing. And that our Lord allows and permits and even devises some of those things in our lives to teach us that. That very thing. You ever wonder why God lets you go through some of the things that He lets you go through? Not because He hates you. It's because He loves you. Um, and He wants to teach us. And He labors alongside us and He upholds our faith and He keeps us during it all. Um, that the temptations and trials of life, as we mentioned weeks ago, that sometimes they are to teach us what is in ourselves and to show us ourselves in relationship to God that we may cling to Him. Stop depending upon self. Forsake pride. Humble our hearts. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That He learned humility. And in that humility, He learned remorse and He learned repentance. And he was brought to the end of Himself. Um, that it was more than just mere remorse. It was a true repentance that led to a godly sorrow as the face of Christ literally looked across the courtyard and saw him. He remembered the word of God and it pierced his heart and it pierced his soul. Peter learned repentance? I think he did. I'm reminded of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9 where you read these familiar words. Man, he must have just Lord him time and time again. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us. He's patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That in my pride and in my lack of humility and in my, my pursuit of self and in my over self vain confidence and, and seeking after glory, even with the best of intentions and sincerity, as I depended upon myself and God could have cast me off, he didn't. You know, like he's long suffering and he's patient with us and that he learned the patience of God and the long suffering of God and the promises of God that he's willing to keep. Peter, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. I will rise up and when I go before you and when you rise up and you repent, go and strengthen your brethren. That he must have clinged to those promises time and time again um, in the days to come. That, 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 that we see a, a true repentance in, in Peter. We see Peter's tears. We see a sorrow connected with unhappiness and a departure from God. We see that in this merciful arrangement of God, that, 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 that in one sense, holiness um, brought him to the end of himself and that grace met him there. That he learned repentance in the trial and he learned um, remorse and um, 
He learned the depravity of his own soul. He learned what he was capable of and what he was not, and God humbled him. And it was evidenced by the sorrow of his heart and the reality of sin um, and his own depravity. He learned that he was not prepared for the temptation. That's one thing that he learned. Um, Peter's path is just, it begins with self-confidence. It, 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 it culminates in a lack of or in idleness and a lack of perseverance. Um, he, he becomes a coward and, and eventually just takes company with the evil. Um, it brings him to the end of his self. Um, but it, he learns that he needs to be prepared for temptation. And maybe that's why in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 13, he writes these words, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why in 3.15 he writes these words, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, even a little girl. You know? You ever wonder why he's the one advocating for a preparation and a readiness to give a defense? Because he's the one that failed. Three times, he's the one that learned the lesson. He's the one that pride and contentment uh, with self and, and vain glory kept him from standing there that day in glorious adoration of our Lord and, and, and testifying and preaching the gospel to those who had taken our Lord. I mean, with that opportunity to associate with our Lord, he was not ready. He was not prepared. He did not have a soberness of mind. He, didn't have, he, he failed to watch and he failed to pray. He failed to depend upon the Lord I mean, in a mighty way. And he learned the lesson. Maybe that's why in verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 7 he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and be watchful in your prayers. Maybe it's because he's the one that didn't watch. Maybe it's because he's the one that didn't pray. Maybe he learned along the way through the sorrow of sin and the reality of human depravity and, and the culmination of pride in his life as he stands toe-to-toe with the adversary um, and, and he can't stand, he falls and weeps bitterly because in that great opportunity to serve our Lord, he fails. And he fails tremendously, even to the point of curses and oaths. That There was no preparation for the temptation. Peter had underestimated the challenges before him. Because of pride. His own sinfulness because of pride. The power of Satan because of pride. Yet though he was a thoroughly committed man. And sincere. He underestimated the importance of preparation. Jesus warned him. Satan desires to have you and to sift you like wheat. He'd give him the course of action. Watch and pray. Depend upon the Spirit. But the thing that we learn from Peter is that whenever we underestimate the gravity of the temptation. We'll also underestimate the necessity of preparation. In his lack of watchfulness, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that he didn't understand what was going on at all. Um, you see the contrast with Christ. that He watched, he prayed, he depended upon the Spirit, and, and he had the Spirit leading and guiding him and upholding him through it all, and the Father met him, him there. But, he, but, but in that watchfulness, he had, a, he had an understanding of what was going on around him. I mean, he understood um, the, the reality of Satan and spiritual warfare. He understood um, what his work was there to do. He understood the necessity of in his humanity, of depending upon the Father and the Spirit. I mean, he understood all those things. Peter didn't. He had no clue. Um, and thus he failed. We learn that even in this, the smallest of temptations, this is for us, 
We learn that even the smallest of temptations devised by Satan are still greater than any of us without Christ, even the best of us. You know? And that's not to discount anyone, but, but, but what we have here is Peter, a blue-collar fisherman who folds under the pressure of a small servant girl. I mean, we're not 100% that it was caused, you know, what caused him to fail again, but, uh, but, but the reality there seems to be that there was little to no threat initially. Uh, we don't know what the purpose, uh, or if it was hostile at all, whether he thought he was going to you know, go to trial or lose his life or whatever. We don't know the intentions, but we do know that this little girl may laid Peter's faith um, and the fact, and not just a minor doctrine, the knowledge, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, it teaches us the, the weakness of human flesh, that we will buckle under even the smallest of pressures without Christ and His Spirit, right? And like, you, you know that. Like, we're talking about Peter here, but we're talking about us. We're talking about working on a daily basis. We're talking about raising our children. We're talking about um, working in the community. We're talking about relating with one another. We're talking about just, just stuff that's made of real life. And isn't it amazing how here in America with relative little persecution, like when was the last time we stood boldly for Christ? You know, may I say that the part, the part of the problem is, is that we, we do not pray, prepare for the temptation. There's no girding up of the loins of the mind. There's no dependence upon the spirits. And, and uh, we can make light here of the fact that, that, that Peter just folds to a little girl under pressure. But the reality is, is that, that given the context and the circumstances of our Lord, um, we, we buckle every day to, to smaller things. I mean, opportunity at work, opportunity with our coworkers, opportunity with our friends, um, to stand up and to stand out and to proclaim Jesus Christ not only with our mouths, but also with our character and with our lives. I mean, how many of us as, as men have been uh, afraid or, or buckled under the pressure to, to perform a task at work at the, at the level that it is because we're afraid that people will think we're strange or weird or, or different? And thus we, we give ourselves to idleness and laziness or apathy and indifference um, uh, and in some sense deny the fact that our Lord is even Lord over our lives. And I'm going to tell you that, 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 it's, that it's a lack of understanding of the nature of true need for preparation to enter into the temptation. This is one of the fundamental problems in our growth of holiness. We have people who truly do love the Lord, and I believe that, but in some sense uh, committed. But we fall into temptation, and we think that the, the guilt and the shame will be enough to carry us through the next temptation. We don't mortify the flesh. We don't, we don't take uh, you know, the, the Word of God and me memorize the Scriptures and, and spend time in prayer and watch. And We have no idea the, the, the provisions that we've made for the flesh. Um, we're exercising no caution. And we think that we're, I mean, it's all because we think we're strong enough. You know, either that or we think that or we abuse the grace of God and think that he's fine with it. I mean, he'll forgive us. You know, we don't have a true gravity of the weight of sin in our lives and what true depravity is and what it does to the Savior and the look that he gives us, you know, um, and, and the grief that it causes. Um, we, don't, we don't understand the holiness of God and we don't understand the frailty of man and the fragile nature of our faith and we don't depend upon the Lord. And we don't seek after him. Peter failed because he was prideful. He thought he could stand. He thought he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil. And thus he failed to watch. He failed to pray. He failed to enter into the temptation ready with a response. 
And it could very well be because he thought the kingdom should go this way and it went that way. He thought Jesus should rule and reign and he was willing to fight. And when it didn't happen, he, 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 he fell under the pressure of a little girl with little to no hostility, it seemed. That he, that, that he failed. He learned that he needed to prepare his mind. He learned that the temptation at hand, um, that, 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 that Satan was real and that without Christ, without the Spirit of God, without the help and aid of God himself, none of us will stand. None of us. Not only that, but he learned that he had a great high priest. <laughs> you know, Luke chapter 22 and verse number 32 says that when Jesus prayed, he prayed for his perseverance. He prayed for his faith. He prayed that it would not fail. That's, I think that's, this is so paramount because I think this is the only difference between him and Judas in some essence. You know, ever wonder that? Ever wonder why Judas failed? But Peter didn't. I wonder that sometimes about my own life. I look at my brothers, I look at my coworkers, I look at my friends, I look at men that I've labored alongside before, and I wonder, why, why am I here? I'm not a better man. I'm not more intellectual. I'm not more spiritual. I don't have more Bible knowledge. I don't have the, the intellect. I don't have the, you know, the, the rhetoric. I don't have the eloquence. I don't have the eye contact. I don't have the personal skills. I don't have what it takes, God. You know? God, I, I'm not a man of great faith. I'm, like, why is it that he abandoned and I didn't? You know? Why is it that he ended up in suicide and I'm here today? You know? Like he's a better man than me in a lot of respects. Judas may have been a better preacher. He may have been a better contender for the faith. He may have been better with the money bag. Why did he go? You know? Why did he betray the Lord? Why did he abandon his faith? Why was it totally deconstructed? And why is Peter still going? I mean, one of the most grievous of all sins, denied the Lord three times with curses and oaths. It's simply the grace of God. And I don't have an answer for you this morning to all those questions. Because I don't know why. I don't know why he loves me. I don't know why he loves you. Um, I don't know why he, he continues to hold you up. I don't know why this morning I woke up with faith. I don't know why I went bed to bed last night praying to Jesus. I don't know why this week or next week I'll still carry on, you know, given myself and my nature and my flesh. I'm weak. On many days I, my flesh is weak and my spirit is willing and I'm overconfident and the Lord uh, has to bring me to the end of myself over and over and over again. And I don't know why he's so patient and long-suffering other than simply that's who he is and like he loves to do that and that he loves me. And I don't know. Um, other, than, other than that's what he's chosen to do. And I'm fine with that, you know. And I'll glory in that and I'll revel in that until the day that I see him face to face and I'm made like him, you know. And that God is teaching us through all of this that we are to be, that He is patient and that He is long suffering and that, 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 that I think the only reason that Peter persevered and got up and it, his, his faith wasn't totally um, unravelled and deconstructed um, is simply because Jesus prayed for him and that He has a great High Priest who's seated now at the right hand of God the Father and so do we um, who is praying for us and interceding for us and that when we don't know how to pray He prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered that there is a Spirit that lives and dwells inside of us that on our worst days and our most prideful contentment, uh, contentment and, 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 and on days where you would even question as you look in the mirror whether you're in the family of God Jesus comes up and He upholds you 
and he brings you to the end of yourself and, and through repentance and remorse and through just a pulverizing of the heart and he gives you a, a contrite spirit and a humbleness to come to the end of yourself and to simply trust Jesus. But I think that that's what he's, he, he must, Peter must revel in. is not in his own strength, but in the glories of Christ. And we see that in, in, his, in his restoration. John chapter 21, we read um, a unique account of, John, of, of Peter in John chapter number 21. The other gospel writers don't, uh, they don't give us this, um, but I'm so thankful that John did. Um, after the resurrection, um, the, the men are out doing what they love to do, they're fishing. And um, Jesus comes along and says, boys, and this is a paraphrase, bring some of that fish and let's talk. Jesus prepares breakfast for them the way that he does. And it says in verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Um, we see Peter here ultimately restored. Many people believe that that's exactly why they gave the account. It's speculation, but it very well may be. Jesus had denied, was denied by Peter publicly three times. And three times here he says publicly and asks him in the midst of the disciples, do you love me? And then he commissions him with, I think, his commission for life to, to feed the sheep, to lead the church of God to, um, to do that. It seems probable that this threefold petition was meant uh, to remind the apostle of his threefold rejection and his threefold rejection of apathy and the failure to three times watch and pray. He denied Christ, and it seems likely as well, given the first statement, lovest thou me more than these, he says, given his prior denial that though all men deny you, yet I will not. And he literally asked him, do you love me more than these? There's some questions. Some people think that he's actually talking about the fishing boat and the poles. I, I don't necessarily think he's talking about his career. But in a similar way, Peter rose up that day and said, I love you more than these. They'll deny you, but I won't. Um, yeah, they will, even though they leave you, I will go to prison and I'll go to death. In some sense, he said, Lord, I love you more than these. And Maybe that's why our Lord is here saying, do you love me more than these seems like a simple question doesn't it even a child understands love to some extent without being able to exhaustively explain what it means they can love a mother they can love a father it's so simple yet profound because love is also seeming the the um the measurement by which we're in christ or not and what does Peter respond? Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, I love you more than these, though. I think he had learned 
His lesson that he was humbled at heart, that pride was a foreign concept to him, at least in this moment. And he professes his love, but he doesn't touch the fact that he loves. Why? Because he knows that he can't know their heart. All he can know is he knows his own heart, and he's already failed in the heart um, that, that he had just days prior. And he expresses a love to him that... Three times, even finishing it progressively, once again, you know my heart. You know how I love you. Um, You know, Lord, that I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And he commissions him. You know, there's a danger here to, to, you know, among us even, and I think Christians all together, to, to get hung up on the topic of love. In one sense, I think that we've seen just a contemporary movement identify love with Christ as a mere affection without any devotion to Christ. And that we have a, we have a funny feeling when we start talking about love because they've defined it all wrong. Um, at the same time, I think that there's a conservative camp out there, maybe even some of us, um, that think that love is not an affection at all. It's just a commitment to, to, to on some days, to do it in any way without any affection. I think both are wrong. I think that love is clearly an affection. I think that it's an inner working of Christ shed abroad in our hearts and that if you love me, keep my commandments, that love is the basis for the keeping of commandments, that it proves the love of, of God and that there should be a balance, that it's, 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 it's not less than an affection, but it's more than an affection. And from that affection comes a devotion to Christ, that, that the love of Christ constrains us, as Paul says. And that it provokes us to to love him and the gratitude of our hearts. Thus he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he restores him to some sense of a position through his repentance and his sorrow and and his humility to a place in which he will now love Christ by loving the church throughout the ages. He will take the weak, the lambs before him. He will take the strong, um, the sheep that God has given him to shepherd and he will care and he will nurture and he will love. He will be, now he is, he is, he is called to serve. This is the restoration of the, of the Apostle Peter. Your usefulness to others, he's saying, is the grand test of love. Working for Christ is the great proof of really loving Christ. It's not to be loud and obnoxious, Peter. The Christian life is not about a high profession. It's more than just a high level of zeal and a seeming commitment uh, with a ready sword to pull out and cut off a guy's ear and hack away at what you think the kingdom should be. Thus, when it doesn't go that way, your faith fails and you deny Christ. But really, this is what the kingdom is. It's, 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 it's peace, it's righteousness, it's joy. And thus you are to be and build kingdom the way that I desire. And if you truly love me, just be steady, be patient, be laborious, love others. That's true Christian greatness. It's written, whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant or your minister. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Peter, you know, I love your zeal. Um, but I hope you've learned you're to aim at loving, at doing, at being useful, at being hardworking, at being unselfish, at being kind, at being unpretentious. You know? To lessen the sorrow of others, to increase their joy, to influence change in a sinful world. But you're not more than these, and he recognizes that now. That he is to come underneath these in a servant capacity and lead them in what it means to die for Christ's name. And he'll do that for the rest of his life. 
He'll be empowered by the Spirit of God at Pentecost. He'll preach a sermon and it'll lay the path, not for a perfect life, but a life of servanthood, a life of love. Peter, do you love me? Um, then feed my sheep. May the, may the humility of Christ clothe you in such a capacity that you get off your high horse and you spend your life serving. I think he understood that. I think he learned that. I think he lived that. I think that's why in chapter 5 and verse 1 of 1 Peter, he says, Elders who are among you, I exhort you, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonesty, but eagerly, not as being lords over them, but by being examples to the flock. Why? So that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Peter learned something that day. He learned something with Christ. He learned that um, he was a prideful man. He learned that Satan was real. He learned that he had a true adversary. He learned that he was not greater than the temptation. He learned that he was lazy, that he was idle, and that he needed to come under and humble himself under the mighty hand of God in which he would be exalted in due time in feeding the sheep for the rest of his life in which it would culminate. And I'm sure that this is one of the glories of his life that finally he would give his life on, uh, on, on, a, on an upside-down Calvary, on an upside-down cross for his Lord and Savior after, li- after a life of faithfulness and dying for him. He learned to love Christ in a true fashion. And that's the question for us this morning, isn't it? We love Peter because he's a lot like us. We love David in Psalm 51 because that's our story. But I pray that your story is not only a story of, of sorrow and sin, but a story of restoration in which God utilizes you to just die to yourself day in and day out. Come off of your high horse. Stop thinking that or the, you know, the, the best thing that the kingdom of God is needed. Uh, that, that what the kingdom of God needs is what Jesus died to save, and that's humble servants willing to give their lives for his cause and his cause alone. That's it, you know. Peter had to stop, had to learn to stop being out at the forefront, um, building kingdom the way that he thought, and simply submit to the Lord, and that's what we need to do as well. And the great question uh, I, I thought of as I just went through in my own personal life is, you know, ask myself I know the Lord doesn't speak audibly but in some sense the word is do you love me do you love me he didn't ask are you eloquent are you great are you a a great expositor are you are you skilled do you have a degree you know Um, are you this you that he simply he didn't say that to Peter either you know Um, he simply asked he didn't say are you eloquent are you are you faithful are you this or you that he said do you love me and that can you say that this morning? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And feed my sheep. You know? Feed my, we, we need a humble heart. And as much as I, I put emphasis and I hear people talking about, you know, um, and, and man, just uh, Peter's turning point at the time of Pentecost, I think that's true. The Spirit of God came upon him and he did things that, that we'll never be able to do. But I think there was a point in his life too in which God just broke him, made him into what he needed, he desired for him to be. And that God only uses broken vessels that he restores for his glory. You're not to, you're not to be great, you're not to be perfect, you're not to be glorious, you're not to be grand, you're not to be beautiful, and you're simply to be faithful and to love Christ and to love one another and live our lives and quickly be forgotten. But may they remember the Christ in which we 
have lived and died daily to die for. Um, Is that you this morning? If he were to ask you that question, do you love me? Can you say with ultimate confidence and with a joy in your heart, I'd love you, Lord? Like, I know it doesn't look like it on a lot of days. I know that, um, that, that it's hard to gauge, but I do. I do love you. Father, would you help me and teach me how to be more faithful? That the world would know, too, as much as you do. That they would know my heart. That I do love you. And it's exemplified in my service to others and my love for the church and my dedication and devotion to your teaching and changing this world with the gospel of Christ. I love Peter. He's a guy like me. He gives me hope um, because God extends a lot of grace and patience to men like that. And we have a faithful high priest. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of your grace. Father, we thank you for Peter, but we thank you most of all for Christ. Thank you for his faithfulness to him, Father. We wonder on many days why you'd even save a man like that, save a man like me. I don't get lost in that too much, though. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to, because that's not the truth about me anymore, Father. You love me. You love your people. In the midst of our sins, Father, your son died for us, that we might walk out of that life and into a greater life. Um, Not our great life now, Father, but the life where we identify ourselves in Christ. We are in Him. So may we look at ourselves, Father, in Christ, in an abundance of grace, and at the same time with a reverent holiness, um, just in all of you, Father, that you would love sinners like us. That seems to be the key to love, doesn't it? The knowledge of forgiveness. The Father, teach us our own depravity. Show us the depths of our own heart, not that it might depress us and leave us there um, debilitated, but that it might cause us even more to abound in the grace that you've extended to us in Christ. May we know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we are no longer sinners, lost in, our, in, our, in the captivity and slaves of sin, Father, but we are in Christ and loved and forgiven. And may that abound even more. May we, may we look at our sin only that we may look to Christ and glory in Him and the majesty and the beauty of Him. And may we write letters. May we preach sermons of the grace of God like our brother Peter. And may the world ever know that if we have one love at all, it's Him. And it's Him alone. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.